0: Uh, What are the two things you're never supposed to talk about?
1: Politics.
0: But that's not fair, because the religion is like the most important thing in our lives. That's not fair. That's taking off the table the thing we probably want to talk about most. But when you're in mixed company, don't know where people are coming from, lots of different beliefs, lots of different opinions, even within groups of faith, there are lots of subgroups with different beliefs on different topics. How do we talk about stuff? Without feeling like either, well, I never say anything because I don't want to offend anyone, or I'm talking but have no idea how it's being received by the people I'm talking to, and I want to talk about my faith, but what if they ask me that question that I don't have the answer to? I, I don't want to bring up a conversation because i only known the Bible for a little bit. I've only known God for a little bit. I couldn't answer people's questions. These feel like familiar thoughts to me. They probably do to you if you've been walking in your faith for any length of time. You want to talk about something, but you don't know everything about it yet. This is maybe wise, not to just go rattling off things that we don't know much about yet. I wish more of the world did that, wait until they knew about things where they talked a lot about them. But we still have to talk. So how do you talk about something we don't feel like an expert? And we take it from being a debate? Because you might say something, oh, actually, I know something. You asked a question, I remember there's a Bible verse that talks about that, or I heard a sermon, or I read a book <clears throat> that was about that, and you, you give your answer, and then immediately someone comes back with something you've never thought of before, and you've got no answer for that. I like, oh, shoot, that was my one good answer. I don't know the second answer. Uh, how, do we, how do we handle that? I think most often it might just cause us to just stop or never get into the conversation in the first place, just get into that mentality, okay, it's politics, religion. Don't push it on anybody. Don't talk about it. But that just feels not fair to me because... I want to be able to talk about Jesus. Jesus is the most amazing person I've ever met and will be the most amazing person that any of us have ever met and the most important person for everyone's eternity. So like, why can't we talk about that? But how do we avoid it devolving into just, well, here's my piece of information. Oh, you got a rebuttal. Shoot, okay. Um, nope, I got a verse for that and you rattle it off and like, nope. I don't know about that. And like, it can be tough. And if we turn it into Bible Answer Man, Bible Answer Woman kind of approach, uh, we're probably bound to fail. Because there's always going to be someone smarter than us out there. Someone who's researched different things that have rebuttals for the things that we think that we're not sure how to answer. I was talking with David earlier about seminary. And uh, Devin walked in and David was saying, "Um, seminary is where people's faith goes to die. (laughs) Cemetery not seminary. And there's some weird like kernel of truth to this that um, Devin and I were then kind of spinning off talking about and I'll share with you. When you take our faith and you turn it into a bunch of facts and you get information, you turn it intellectually, you turn it too much that way, then it loses the relationship with God. It becomes something that's confusing. And oh, by the way, you find out there's a lot of things you don't have answers to that you didn't even know you didn't have the answers to because you never asked the question. Like, oh, Shoot, there's ten million questions now I need to answer that I didn't have to answer before I came to school to learn more about God, and now walking away more shaky in my faith because of all the things I've got to like research and wrestle with. God's more gentle with us than seminary is. <laughs> he introduces us to one thought at a time over a long period of time as we grow. And like, what about this? We can be rocked by like a single moment. And. Um, Sometimes seminary is like a dump truck that backs up, beep, beep, and it just unloads every question that could ever be asked about God. It's like, good luck, and here's every thought that could ever be thought about every book that was ever written. <laughs> I can't do it, and you just get crunched. So for those of you who have not gone to cemetery, seminary, however you want to say it, um, there's both a beauty and, and a weakness, a strength and weakness that come along with that. Don't ever begrudge the fact that your faith hasn't been turned into an intellectual series of classes. You have a purity of faith in a way that someone who has rigorously studied every letter of the alphabet and the different languages and different literary criticisms is now like just looking at it from a different perspective. Uh, but for those of us who have gone to Bible school or a Christian school or been discipled or been trained, that's a valuable thing. If you have been learning those things and it has not shaken your faith or has not knocked you down, well, now you have more tools and more resources to be able to approach the big questions in the world. you face faced them sooner. It's like growing up quick. <laughs> it helps you to grow up quick. And I hope that as we read the Bible every week, um, we grow up slow and steady. Maybe not quick and not too quick, but just right so that God can lead us into the things that we need to talk about. And what I would like to talk about is using storytelling as a means of communicating our faith. And this is, again, a good and a bad thing. It has some strengths and some weaknesses. So I hope you'll hear me out. We're going to look at people in the pages of scripture that use storytelling as their way of communicating their faith. Um, But... When you tell a story about something that happened in your life, just like we did a minute or two ago, uh, you don't have to worry about debating the facts of it or the finer points. Someone just says, well, that was your experience, and you get to share that. So there's a certain freedom given for sharing a story, and if it's a story that we experienced ourselves, there's a certain kind of ownership of that. Versus, like, I heard once that there's a Greek word for love that means different kinds of things. And, you know, you're sort of, like, grasping at straws, you know, swimming in the deep end of the pool. Whereas, if you say, I was about to get, Michelle and I had this experience, about to get into a serious car accident. It was, like, 2 a.m. We're driving through Pennsylvania, going around a corner. She was driving, so we're probably about 80 miles an hour, give or take. And... Uh, No, I'm not joking. Yeah, maybe it was faster. But anyway, we're trying to get where we're going. I'm asleep in the passenger seat, and a car pulls in front of us, and we swerve, and we go into the meeting, and we start doing 360s, and we didn't die, and they didn't die, and God saved us, and it was like an angel just stood around us and protected us. Um, So when I tell that story, I don't care if you believe me. (laughs) I don't need to defend it. I don't have to talk about what kind of tires we had or what the road was made of. No, it was just God saved us that day. But if we're all just telling our stories, the danger of that, so that's the good part. The dangerous part is that everybody's got a story. My story is I prayed to Buddha, and then things went better the next day, so it must be the Buddha answered my prayers. My story is that I don't believe anything, and I think it just has to do with how you're raised, and if you have good morals, and look at my life, it's pretty good. It's like, oh, okay, well, every story's competing now. Now it's just an opinion factory. Yours versus mine versus everybody is, and where does that leave us? So what I'd like to talk about are kind of links In a storytelling chain and I think there's three of them if we start start with our story and then move from there to talk about how it's part of God's bigger story I think Jesus saved us that day or an angel saved us that day because God has a bigger purpose for us and he wasn't ready for us to be dead so that fits within the larger scheme of what God's doing in our world so that's the second link in the chain now it's not just a story about me or about our driving skills or the recklessness of other drivers But then if we say, take it all the way to Jesus as the final link in the chain, we can make that a gospel story. You know, Jesus has saved me far more than that angel did. If I had died that day, I'd be in heaven, I'd be okay. Because Jesus saved me where it really matters, eternal life, not just, you know, the Volkswagen that we were driving at the time. So it's really simple to go from a story to God's story to Jesus. And if you link those three links of that chain together, I think you have a gospel story now. You've got a gospel story. I couldn't do something, God could do it. Jesus does this thing. You see how they kind of link together and I encourage you as you're telling your stories to people to share amazing stuff that God does in your life, but give them credit and point it to Jesus. And if you do that, you're sharing the gospel and you didn't even know any Greek or any Hebrew, didn't have to go to cemetery for four years. You didn't have to be in a church service. You just had something happen that was true and meant something and it's bigger than you. It's about God, actually, that thing that happened to you, and his goodness, his strength, his provision, his love. Ah, now we're rooted in something big. But guess what? The best part of that whole big thing is Christ. So he's the most loving, the most providing, the most saving. And you just go there. All of a sudden now, you're using story as a means to communicate truth, and it hasn't evolved into a debate. I encourage you to just consider this topic. this concept, we're going to look at some people in uh, Scripture. I was curious though, before we jump into Scripture to hear some stories, what are some of the approaches that you have either been taught or read or tried yourself for how to talk about faith? Um, maybe you were discipled at some point, you went through an evangelistic course, if you're a part of that, like how have we tried? Can you think back in your lives to different approaches or techniques people use for sharing their faith or that you yourself have used? I thought of a handful. I know there's many out there. There's probably many I've never heard of, but I'm curious. We're going to talk about storytelling, but what are some of the other ones that are out there? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a fair question. I didn't realize we might need to take more time on this one. Then we use the bridge diagram. Bridge diagram. Good. Okay, we know the bridge. We've got a gap. You have two cliffs, and the bridge across is Jesus. You put a cross right, in front, right between those two gaps, and Jesus bridges us from where we are in our sin to God and relationship with him. So, bridge diagram, great one. What else? A Roman road. A Roman road. Okay, good. That is a series of verses in the book of Romans only. Go from like 323, I think, to 623, and then there's a few others, four or five, and you just lead some, and in that one letter from Paul to the Christians in Rome, you get to see the gospel laid out just really clearly. So it's like a one-book-in-the-Bible approach. A few verses. What else? The four circles, inter uses. Yes, um, In varsity four circles. Yeah,
2: like creation, fall, Jesus, and being
0: sent out with the Holy Spirit. Creation, fall, Jesus, and being sent out. All right. Yeah, I remember that one. It's got a lot of details in it, too. I'm not sure I could say it with clarity without drawing it out. Um, that's a good one, though. Very effective with pen and paper, for sure. Many of these are, actually. If you can sketch something or use something to represent um, visually, it's actually really helpful. Anything else? Is my mom here? She's downstairs. What does she use with the kids? It's got colors, a few colors. A album, book. Yeah, the book that has colors or the bracelet. The green represents new life, and the the yellow represents something else, and black is probably sin. I don't remember from when I was five, so (laughs) forgive me. But that's a color-based way to symbolize the gospel story. God created everything good. Sin ruined it. He sends Jesus in to save us. He gives us new life. We go out. like That's the progression of the gospel. Um, What else? I want to think of a few more because let's get these wheels spinning because we're going to tie them. We can tie them all into storytelling.
1: They have to be the best
0: it could be a lame version. You got a lame one coming to mind?
1: Well, I just have a couple, like, you know, people in the city on a street corner who are. Okay, like, right. Maybe up on a couple milk crates and they're wearing something that they've hung over their body that says you're going to burn in hell. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think that if, I'm sure that there maybe is a time where that hasn't impacted somebody for, for Christ. I yeah. think maybe not always. Yeah. Um, yeah. People, I've seen people do music on the street, singing, yeah. um,
0: worship music. Yeah. Subway stations or in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably an interesting and effective way to capture
1: people's attention. Yeah. Yeah, these are great. Any
2: others? Tracy? Bumper uh, sticker or emblem or, well,
1: license
0: plate. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, you mean your license plate? Jesus? Oh, Jesus. Right, 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 right. makes a yeah. Yeah. I, I want us to think of these because I want to then ask: Did Jesus use any of these? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Storytelling. What one? Mostly storytelling.
0: There's a lot of storytelling. Any of these techniques that we use, did he use?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's.
0: The bridge. Comes to the Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Okay. Yeah? It's scripture. to all right, all right. Hand off there. It's a relay race. Pass the baton to, the baton to Paul, and Paul wrote it down for him. Yes? It made me think this week about Jesus' own techniques. He shared the gospel better than anybody ever has. How did he do it? Parables. Parables, yeah. Life
2: together.
0: Life together, yeah. Lived it out. Yeah. Intentionally
2: and relationally.
0: Intentionally and through
2: relationship.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Miracles? He showed that he was God by what he did, and people couldn't refute that, right? Um, And I want to accept the fact, too, that there is a time and place, almost like Michelle was saying with the the placard, you know, we're all going to burn in hell without Jesus. Um, There's a time and place for every conversation. Um, And so there were times where Jesus brought out the fire and brimstone. It was like the right time and the right audience. They needed to hear that confrontational style. And even the debating, um, Jesus always used the phrase, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Just direct rebuttal of facts and information that they had been taught. So it's not that we should only become storytellers. It's just that there's a really good opportunity in our culture right now for storytelling being a way to share the gospel. Because as you've probably been seeing and reading, and I know we've talked about a little bit here at New Hope, our society is shifting from a logic kind of factual-based society to a postmodern kind of relativistic storytelling society. And so facts and details are less valuable now. And the audience you're trying to talk to is so used to hearing so many people spit facts at them from so many sources that they just are skeptical of all the facts. You know, when there's five or ten really smart people all saying opposite things, you just kind of like throw out all the facts that they're giving you because you don't know who to side with. So with more information comes more skepticism about truth, more skepticism about facts. But it makes it more open. That's kind of a society which we're trending towards. That makes that society more open to, well, don't give me facts, but what do you know? What did you see? What have you experienced? And while this can kind of devolve into the Facebook sort of like um, opinion-based society, that's not what I want us to be. I love Jesus. You love something else, and it's all the same. Well, I don't feel it's the same. I feel that Jesus is unique and special and the best and the greatest and one of a kind, and there is no life without him. Him on the cross was, was, I don't know, unavoidable. And so we need to be able to have those conversations on how do we do it without it being a battering ram of facts versus opposing facts. I was thinking that kind of reminds me of a, a, a movie. You tell the, tell the story in the movie and then just run the credits at the end. And it says, this movie was brought to you by God. All the events in this movie were made possible by God and God alone. This showing that Jesus is the ultimate representation of God and all things lead to him. Just like tell your story and then run the credits at the end. Just give credit where credit is due. We are not God. God alone controls all things. So we want to put ourselves in the proper perspective and not let our, let our opinions take too much weight. The phrase that I, I'm going to give you now as like a summary of this, before we read scripture, before I ask you kind of if you have some more thoughts on this, is that the gospel is human stories within God's stories, all pointing to Christ. That, that in my mind, is what the good news is. The good news is God saved me because God saves and Jesus is the Savior. It's like my story, God's story, Christ's power. You know, my events, God's pattern of how he deals with people, Christ's deliverance, the Messiah, the one. And if it goes in that route, then I think you have a full gospel story. So, before we open Scripture and read a couple of stories from Scripture together, what do you think about this truth-telling versus storytelling? Do you see it being true in some of the conversations you have? Do you, do you see, like, there's both sides of it, cases for each? What is this triggering just as a concept before you read Scripture?
2: Um, my, my friend, Kinshiro, he read this book, and he recommended I haven't read it, uh, so I'm giving him the credit. And it talks about the new way of doing apologetics in a post, postmodern world. Hmm. And it says not to talk about the gospel in, a, in an apologetic kind of fact way, but it's more of approaching the gospel because it's be- a beautiful story. So then you present it to people not because it's true, which is which it is, but you present it because it's beautiful. And people nowadays will receive that because if you see the way that people look at, at, at shows, at, at movies, even in their own lives, they're mm. attracted to beautiful stories. Mm, so when you present the gospel not like in mean, the old way of. Well, no, you know, if you go look at the, you know, the gospel was written this way. You know, they're not interested in that. They're not interested, like you said, in logic. They're interested in if it's just beautiful. And if you think about the gospel mm. as a story, it's the most beautiful story. Mm-hmm. Um, is is literally God dying for love for us, and so people are more receptive. So that I mm. thought of that and to mm. connect that with scripture, because you know, we go and we see Paul. I I think of Romans one sixteen for I am mm-hmm. not ashamed of the gospel. Right. because is the power. A, a God for salvation to all who believe so right. it's, it's in the storytelling and it's not on the facts so that's right. kind of like what I was thinking about
0: yeah that's awesome that's awesome that fits right in any other thoughts on this kind of storytelling versus truth telling or how they all fit together Elia sometimes it's the manner in which it is done like yeah Hmm. In which case, this ties in directly with last week, talking about relatability. Like, how do we connect with people? If people come into a church place or talk to a Christian person, they don't want to be turned off by all the Christian jargon or the, the way we talk about things dismissively or mocking things or judgmentally. Um, so this is that, we're telling you our story in such a way that you might be able to hear it, but it's not our story. It's it's bigger than us. And it makes me wonder if someone walked into a church, which would they be more drawn to when they walk into the room and everybody's telling amazing stories of what God's done in their lives or people who are quoting what they know about God to each other. Like one-upping each other on information. Like, I, I want to know what's real. I, there's lots of facts out there, but, yeah. So let's, this ties into relatability very much. Ian. Storytelling is just such- incredible skill throughout human history. It's the way we mm. recorded history originally, where stories yeah. passed down generation to generation. It's seen as probably one of the most valuable skills that CEOs and, and chief officers of companies mm. have to inspire and engage their, their business and their employees. Like It's mm. such a rich skill for everyone to lean into. It's probably one of the, the primary drivers of social media right now are um, mm. more video based. If you're a good storyteller, you're going to have an engaging base. Mm. Yeah. It's bigger than even just our application here. It's cultural. This is interesting. Yeah. Thank you. I was, was
1: going to say something similar to Ian. I remember a long time ago like over 10 years ago so i'm not going to pretend like i remember the book but i read this book it was very interesting about about just storytelling like in general and how it was basically like in in ancient art you Mm. know um talked a lot about like native americans and how you know it was their storytelling was just so amazing and i remember at the time just like for me being able to relate it to you know the bible and always just like in, in talking to my kids and teaching my kids you know about like these stories that have like withstood the test of time too. Mm-hmm. You know, so, like we still have these stories all these years later, you know, and, and mm-hmm. some of them obviously right are a little tough to understand and some of them were, some parables are super easy. But yeah, I just it really made me like value how important it was too in like my own family to like tell mm-hmm. stories, you know, and like for other generations, like mm-hmm. asking my grandmother and my mom story you know, like that all these things, because like, mm-hmm. it is just so Personal just helps you relate to people so much more, and on like just this, like, real deep deep
0: level. It does, and I think in some ways it gets a bad rap, too. It's like pastors who are known as like storytellers is like the diminishing way of saying they don't talk truth, they don't teach information, it's all just stories. And I'm not even really talking about preaching in this, although I guess there could be a mix of that in preaching as well. I'm talking about how do we talk to people that aren't in a church anywhere, <laughs> who don't have any faith base, how do we engage without sitting them down with paper and pen and be like, let's draw some diagrams. I think they might not want that. Maybe they would. Know your audience. All right, please turn with me to John chapter 6. I'm going to read a couple of Passages, short ones before we get to this, but John 6 is one I want to read. Jesus, how he handles a miracle and a truth and a story, all the things together. And then we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians and read from Paul and let him. So we're kind of looking at how people have used story in Scripture. And like I said, there's four of them, but the first couple I'm just going to read to you if you want to get ready and read along as uh, Jesus tells his story. John 6 is where we're going to go. But the first one is from Psalm 105. King David, so how does he talk about his faith? In this psalm, Psalm 105, he says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell all of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name, and let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence. Continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he has uttered. <laughs> so, his deeds, his miracles, his stories, miracles, and his judgments is true. Like, even from King David's time, you have this like predictive nature. Um, God does these things. He has works, deeds, strength, presence. Um, Jesus did all these things, miracles, words from God. And this is one of the, the key, like, proofs to me in my mind when I think about Christ. If there are certain things that only a God could do, and Jesus did things that only God can do, then Jesus must be God. And when you see Jesus do miracles and walk on water and multiply food, these aren't things that people can do. And so therefore it gives him a greater weight. So in this psalm, we're seeing just God's character but, you know, Jesus in John eight fifty eight says, I am, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus is part of the Godhead, and he does all these things, the works, the deeds, the strength, the presence, the judgments, the miracles. <laughs> it's all in Christ. And so David doesn't mention Jesus by name, but these are one of the ways that we know that the story points to Christ. It's King David's story. He could go on to talk about battles won, but it's God's strength. And he's pointing towards Jesus God's presence, his judgments, his miracles. So that's how King David tells his story with that three links of the gospel storytelling chain. Uh, Moses, if we were to read from Deuteronomy 6.20, um, this is about teaching your children. He writes to all the nation and preaches actually to them to learn this. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? So what does the kid ask? Why do we have to do all this stuff? Rules. Why so many rules, mom? Why so many rules, dad? He doesn't answer with why the rules. (laughs) He tells the story of a God that saved them. And if that God can save them, then whatever he says, we're going to do. Because look what he did. So Moses' response, he wants the parents to respond. Not why this rule, why this commandment, why this judgment. You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. So Moses sees his story as a part of God's story leading towards the promised land. This is what we live out as Christians. Our story within God's story leading towards heaven, the promised land. We don't think we've arrived. We don't think America is heaven on earth. We don't think the United States is... Heaven on earth. It's where we're located as we wait to go to where we belong, where we're called, where we're longing for. Eternal life. So even here in Moses, you see the same pattern. This is how God's people talk about their stories. Here's my story, here's God's story, and this is where it's leading. And Christ is where every story leads. So let's read Jesus' own words. In John 6, going to start in verse 52. This is a longer passage. And... um, I would be tempted to shorten it, except I don't want to. So we're just going to read it. And I know we got extra things we're trying to do this morning, but if we can't take time to just sit into Jesus' words, then what the heck are we doing? So John 6, 22. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000, okay? So it's post-miracle. Everybody's in awe. Did you see what that guy did? And they're trying to track him down. So that's our context. John 6, 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. So other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went over to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Here's the truth, truly, truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of bread. Do not just work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So here's the miracle, proof that God does amazing things, but this is part of what God's doing, God's plan. Don't stop there because that's actually just going to be temporary. You're going to be hungry again tomorrow. But there is another kind of food that will satisfy you. And you will not care what food you have or don't have or if you live a long life or a short life because you're going to a better place, eternal life. So Jesus does these three links in the gospel storytelling chain and he bases it off the miracle. Let's continue, verse 28. So they said to him, well, then what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. Our job is just to believe Jesus. It's just to trust him. He's the one in charge. He's the one carrying the load. We trust in him. And it's hard to do sometimes, and so it's a work. It's not a, a works, working your way to heaven. It's, it's a challenge. It's hard. It's, it takes a struggle. It, it takes exertion. It takes faith and patience and suffering. This is our work, that we believe in him whom God has sent. Verse 30. So they said to him, okay, then what sign will you do that we may see you and believe you? What work will you perform? Now, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. All right? So that's one story of a group of people. That's the temporary human story. Jesus expands it. He's like, it's not just about that. That's part of something much bigger. Um, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he, God, gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Jesus said to them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, "'but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. "'For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven "'and gives life to the world.' "'And they said to him, "'Sir, give us this bread always.' "'Jesus said to them, "'I am the bread of life. "'So whoever comes to me shall not hunger. "'Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. "'But I said that to you who have seen me "'and still you don't believe.' All that the Father gives me will come to me. Eventually, we could say, parenthetically, you know, they will eventually come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is embedding his own story within God's redemptive story. Verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. We've now connected it to eternity. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and will raise him up on the last day. So the Jewish people grumbled about him, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this just Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. So everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except Excuse me, except he was from God. He has seen the Father. He's talking in third person about himself. He's seen the Father. So we're back to his statements of truth. It's mingled. It's story. It's miracle. It's truth. It's gospel. It's eternity. It's in the moment. Jesus is the master storyteller. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now, your forefathers ate manna in the wilderness, but they still died. He says they died. No, it didn't preserve them forever. Now, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world, what is the bread? Is my flesh. Well, then the Jewish people disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat, see this table up here, this communion table? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Now this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So Jesus uses a miracle as an opportunity to go past the miracle. We see this always in Scripture. The miracles, Jesus was not a miracle worker. You can't give him that title, even though he did miracles, because that would mean that that's sort of like his ministry. Sort of like a healer has a healing ministry, Jesus' purpose was redemption, was forgiveness. And he did miracles to prove that point. The miracles are proofs of his purpose. But he's the grace, he's the redemption, he's the Messiah. He's not a miracle worker. And so the miracles never stop in and of themselves. And, And see, even the people the next day, show us a sign. He just fed thousands of people from like scrawny little fishes. So it's not about signs, and he knows that. He's like, all right, so I'm going to show you this, and you can take it or leave, you can believe me or not but it's about something much bigger. And so he's pointing them to eternal life. He's pointing them to something bigger and more. And that's, that's really the way we should treat our stories. We were saved miraculously that day driving. I'll never forget that. I will never forget that day. It was so scary. Imagine being me too. I always want to sleep. I wake up as the car is doing 360s. I'm like, what? <laughs> what is going on? Terrifying, really. But that miracle isn't there just to be for that day. That miracle is to prove that God loves me.
1: Amen.
0: Just like the bread wasn't just to feed some hungry people. It's to prove that God feeds us. And I believe that the same way we are saved that day, my soul will be saved forever, whenever I die. Whether it's five minutes from now or 500 years from now. It doesn't matter. Eternal security, confidence in Jesus. If He can do this, we can believe what he says. So our stories are always supposed to be rooted. Miracles are not an end in themselves. And even though they might be the most spectacular part of our faith, don't get addicted to them. Don't get addicted to miracles. Or if God doesn't continue like popcorn miraculous stuff in your life all the time, like, oh, that's it, what have you done for me lately? He would never have to do anything for us ever, and that should be fine. Just knowing what he did with Jesus should be just good enough we do, we get addicted to the latest sensational thing. Some people even kind of like follow. You're like looking for the latest miracles to happen or the, the latest prophet or healer or something. It's like we don't need more, but God still keeps giving. <laughs> These things haven't stopped. God still does miracles. But instead of being greedy for more of the proofs, which we should already believe, just be thankful for the miracles you've already seen. Maybe decides to give you a few more along the way. Awesome but talk about the ones you've already gotten and don't make them about you they're his story, he did that, you didn't make that happen, the most miraculous thing in your life you did not make happen, I promise you, when you go back and look at your story, you couldn't have controlled it that way otherwise it's not amazing, like oh I did this I got up and I made breakfast and I ate it, no it was amazing because you couldn't do it, and then God did it, but that was impossible, but it happened anyway, like that should be enough, don't be greedy for more proofs when the proofs aren't the point Jesus is the point And if he's got your soul already, then that's miracle enough. We're just grateful for anything else he might want to give us along the way. Like I said, I want to read from Paul a little bit just to hear how he tells his story. Um, It's a shorter passage, and um, we'll go from that into a time we can maybe share with our small groups again. Um, Just think about our stories together a little bit deeper. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul tells the story of bad things that, him, things that have happened to him, good things that have happened to him, good things that have happened to other people. He's telling a story, and he constantly sets it in the picture of God's story, and he constantly leads it towards Christ. So look for his phrases. I'm just going to read it through once, and then we'll, we'll close, we'll wrap up. But he mentions being servants of Christ. This is not about him. He mentions a man in Christ. So someone else who had an amazing thing, tell each other's stories. Did someone tell you an amazing story before? Tell that story. Be like, I was at church today, and the person I was sitting next to, they told me this crazy story. Wow. That brother, that sister in Christ experienced God in a way that I maybe never will. Tell their story. Paul does. It's not all about him, it's about God. He talks about the power of Christ for the sake of Christ. He welcomes his own weaknesses, because it's not our story. <laughs> we're not the hero of our story. God's the hero of the story. Christ is the hero of the story. You know, we're small bit actors in the big picture and that's good enough we at least got to be in the film we're in the credits we like we're there uh, but we're not running things that's god's job second corinthians 11:21 Paul writes to this church in Corinth. He says, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking like a fool now, so he's being sarcastic and ironic and everything else. He said, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. So I'm talking like a madman here. Like, don't take me seriously, but make understand the point. I've had far greater labors, Paul says, far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift in the sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from this, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, all his babies, his baby Christians that he had talked and these churches had come up. He said, who is weak? And I'm not feeling weak because I sympathize with them. Um, who is made to fall? And I'm not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he was blessed forever. He knows I'm not lying. It's Paul's story. He knows I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I'll go on to visions, revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in his body or out of the body. It was a physical thing or a vision. He says, I don't know. God knows. But I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot even be told, which man may not utter. Now, on behalf of that man, I'll boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I wouldn't be a fool. I'd be speaking the truth, but i refrain from it so no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul said, well, therefore I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with my weaknesses and my insults, with my hardships and my persecutions and these calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's a good story. That's a true story. But it's not Paul's story. It's his story within the context of God's story and it's pointing to Christ as the purpose behind it all. If we could even get a little bit of this Christian skill set that Jesus is perfect at, that Paul is pretty good at. Notice he didn't just go into logic here. He does in other cases, right? Book of Romans, Book of Galatians, very logical. Argumentation, thorough points, rebuttals. But this isn't the time for that. And he knew when is the time. I just want to tell my story now. We should be as wise to know when the time is to just tell something that God did because it's good. We find ourselves kind of embedded in a story at 49 Main Street, don't we? It's something that's beyond us that we couldn't predict, that we can't make happen, that we still don't know how is going to come to completion, but we're just walking along that story. So we have an opportunity to talk about that story. But whose story is that? It's not our story. Who's the hero of 49 Main Street? It's not Jose. It's not Michelle. It's not me. It's not New Hope. God's the hero of the story. It's his story. He's doing something there. And guess what? If we wouldn't partner with him in this, He would have brought some of those people to do what he wants to get done. He's not going to be thwarted. He's not going to be stopped. It's his story. So we just get the privilege of being a part of it, seeing what he's doing. So talk all you want about 49 Main Street. Tell our story. But recognize this is God's story. And we'll live in it and live out of it. We'll come into it and then we'll drop out of it. We'll live and then we'll die. It will continue in whatever way God wants it to because he's the one at work. Make sure we know whose stories we're talking about. Think about what this means for our kids and how we tell stories to kids. Is it more important that our kids know the stories, true stories of Christ and the Bible, or that they know the facts and apologetics about it? It's a trick question because it's both. But think about both. Think about what ages your kids are and how they'll receive what they can learn. Tell both. How about our our annual meeting that we're about to break and go to in just a, a couple of minutes? Shouldn't that be just our story? As part of God's story, shouldn't it be a celebration? Like, look at the story God's doing. This is the difference when you go to history class from it being really boring, a bunch of facts and numbers, and you're just trying to memorize it for the test, or being the best class you ever had because the teacher's telling you the story of what happened, and it comes alive. Like, that's the difference between business meetings and celebrations, between here's the facts versus wow. Look at the story. We're living through quite an amazing time in so many ways in our country. We have such an amazing story happening with our church family right now. I just encourage us to try to apply it to everything from family to conversations on the T heading into Boston to co-workers to family members and um, not to fall into the trap of putting politics and religion on the shelf. (laughs) Maybe politics. Put that one on the shelf. I'm fine with that. But don't put Jesus on the shelf. Don't tuck him away tell the story, and if you have no story to tell, if Jesus has never done anything in your life that's worth telling a story about, well, then you probably just need to ask him to come into your life, because if he'd been in it, stuff would have happened, so maybe you just don't know him that well yet, and that's okay. He's inviting all who come to him. He won't turn away, right? We just read his own words. He's eternal life, so maybe you don't yet have those stories. Totally fine. They're not our stories. They're his, and he will lead you into whatever he's doing, um, Just by you asking. So that offer always stands open. So I'm going to have you turn back to your groups. You're going to take five minutes and then we're going to transition to telling the story of this past year. Here's what I want you to do. Tell the same stories you did. Still in less than a minute. Just connect them to God and point them to Jesus. Can you say it in a phrase? I did it with my car crash experience. Think about how you could rephrase the same exact story by putting God and pointing to Christ and then we'll transition to telling a great story.